Hello and welcome to Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. We're an intersectional activist organization working to build a society, an economy, run by the working class. A society that democratically meets the needs of the many rather than creating profits for the few. Renegade Paradise is a news, commentary, and educational platform based on socialist analysis from activists on the ground here in the Low Country. By sharing socialist perspective and lifting up the voice of our allies and comrades, we hope to create space for folks in this part of the country looking to deepen their understanding of leftist politics, but who may not know exactly where to start. Members of the Charleston Democratic Socialists of America come from a broad, diverse set of backgrounds and tendencies within the spectrum of the left. But what unites us is one common goal, and that goal is to build a different world, a better world. I'm your host for today's episode, CJ Bones. Thanks for listening. Today we're going to talk about the book Revolution in the Air, written by Max Elbaum. A lifelong activist and writer, Max has been involved in peace and anti-racist movements since joining Students for a Democratic Society in Madison, Wisconsin in the 1960s. Through the 70s and 80s, he participated in campaigns defending affirmative action and opposing U.S. military interventions in the Third World, while writing extensively for the radical press and taking part in then-widespread efforts uh, to construct a new U.S. revolutionary political party. In the 1990s, he was the editor of Crossroads, a magazine featuring dialogue and debate among socialists and radicals from different left political traditions. In 2001, he was among the uh, founders of Wartimes slash Tiempo de Guerras until 2006, a free bilingual in-print tabloid distributed nationwide, and until 2011, an online information and analysis project. He's currently one of the editors of Organizing Upgrade, and I just took that last paragraph or so from the bio of his website. So I um, want to make sure I credit that. Uh, Elbaum's writings have appeared in a lot of different publications, including The Nation, In These Times, Radical History Review, uh, Z Magazine, and the Encyclopedia of the American Left. Max's book, Revolution in the Air, primarily deals with the formation of the new communist movement in the United States in the 60s and 70s, and its subsequent decline in the 80s. It examines what organizations like DSA can learn from the legacies of Lenin, Mao, and Che, and from the various tendencies and organizations of the new communist movement at the time. The new communist movement was made up of large numbers of young activists radicalized by black liberation movements, the Vietnam War, and the Cultural Revolution in China, among other things. The new communist movement embraced a third-world-oriented version of Marxism, which placed, unlike members of the so-called old left at the time, more emphasis on revolutionary movements outside of the Soviet Union. Uh, by the 1980s, these groups had either collapsed or waned significantly in power for many reasons, uh, uh, such as infiltration and outright oppression by government forces uh, through policies like COINTELPRO, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, the resurgent of the political right under Ronald Reagan, etc. In the book, Max takes a broad view of the new communist movement and discusses the lessons learned from it within the context of modern socialist movements. And uh, recently, Max was in Charleston to discuss Revolution in the Air uh, at the Union Hall for ILA Local 1422 in downtown Charleston. Our comrade Nick was on the scene to ask him some questions about the book and get his take on applying lessons learned from the 60s and 70s 
in an age of rising inequality, fascism, and looming environmental destruction on the horizon. So the rest of this episode is primarily going to be uh, audio for uh, that interview. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. I'm CJ Bones. This is Renegade Paradise. This is Nick with Charleston DSA Renegade Paradise Podcast, and I'm here with Max Elbaum. And we're going to be going over Max's book, Revolution in the Air, and some of Max's thoughts on lessons we can learn from the left of the 60s and 70s. So thank you, Max, for being here with us today. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So we'll just jump right into it. So Max, will you talk a little bit about your involvement in SDS and the Line of March and how that influenced your writings later on in Crossroads and War Times? SDS was Students for a Democratic Society. It was the largest student radical organization in the 1960s. And I was a member of Students for a Democratic Society in Madison, Wisconsin, at the University of Wisconsin, which was one of the centers of a lot of political activism in that period. The main pivots of the 60s movements were the fights against war and racism. Uh, the black freedom movement, the civil rights movement, the black power movement, uh, and the struggles around the world against racism, white supremacy, Western imperial domination, those were the main influences on the radicalization in the 1960s. And the fights against war and racism were our entryways for most of our, my generation into radical politics and an anti-capitalist, anti-systemic uh, point of view. Uh, during the time I was at the University of Wisconsin from 1967 through 1970, uh, experienced the first use of tear gas on a predominantly white college campus after the sit-in uh, stopping Dow recruiters, Dow Chemical made napalm uh, for use in Vietnam. If you've seen the pictures of the My Lai massacre, the kids running down the road in, in you know, with their flesh burning. Yeah. Uh, the National Guard occupied the campus twice while I was there, once during the black student strike for uh, open admissions and black studies in February 1969, and then again in May of 1970, after the invasion of Cambodia and the killings uh, at Kent State and Jackson State of protesters. So my experience in SDS uh, imprinted on me and thousands of other radicals of that generation uh, the centralities of the struggles against war and racism. Uh, the other thing that that period uh, taught me uh, or from my experience was that there was a relationship between a, a very broad mass movement, very chaotic, different tendencies, different points of view, different social sectors, uh, 
but with some common aims, again, yeah. ending the Vietnam War and bringing about racial equality were, were the central ones of that period and that birthed, of course, the women's movement, the modern LGBTQ movement, the other movements came, came out of that, but those were the two pivots in that particular period. And there was a relationship between that kind of broad movement and the idea that there needed to be some kind of left force within it that would have a sense of the system as a whole and what might be strategic moves to move from one step to another. And those tended to grow in tandem. When the broadest mass movement grew, the left component within it also grew. And when the left was stronger, it was able to solidify and move that broader movement forward. So those were some of the lessons and some of the things that were imprinted on thousands of us coming out of the 60s. Mm -hmm. uh, your question mentioned the Line of March. That was a very different kind of organization. SDS was a very broad mass organization. It was radical. It, at its height, it had almost 100,000 members. But it did not have, beyond a generic radicalism and commitments against war, racism, for justice, a, a generalized pro-working class and international orientation, it didn't have a coherent strategy or direction. Was a lot of us concluded um, that a, a, an organization with a more focused uh, political strategy, uh, a more coherent, uh, form of organization, more disciplined, more accountable to one another, uh, more focused with the division of labor and so, all kinds of things, more specialization was necessary. And that led to the development of many political party type organizations uh, out of the 1960s upsurge. Uh, the part of the left that I was in was the part that identified most strongly with the third world revolutionary movements of the time. The national liberation movements in Africa, Asia, Latin America, Amilcar Cabral and the African movements, Che, Fidel, the Cuban revolution, Chairman Mao and the Chinese revolution, and of course the Vietnamese who were on the front lines. Um, and there were a number of attempts to build political parties that emulated uh, in many respects, obviously you couldn't import the models and strategies of those countries are far different from the United States, but the idea of that kind of political form mm -hmm. of a tight Marxist, Marxist-Leninist party, uh, and Line of March was one of those many groups. Uh, and that uh, the, the, there were strong points and weak points of that form of organization and how what our strategies were. Uh, and a lot of what my book is about is documenting that history of those kinds of groups, or at least one section of those kinds of groups, uh, and then throwing that out there for people in DSA and the new generation of people in general uh, to take take what you think is useful from it and uh, leave the rest aside. Well, that's great. Um, that leads us right into our next question here. 
Um, before you wrote your book, Revolution in the Air, you participated in building a new U.S. revolutionary political party. Can you talk a little bit about that and then maybe compare that with the most recent wave of folks coming to the left and joining organizations such as DSA? Well, as I mentioned, uh, out of the 60s radicalization, there was a sense by thousands of people that uh, some more coherent form of organization was needed with a focused political strategy in order to uh, play some kind of leadership or advanced role within a broad uh, political movement. Uh, our worldview at the time, uh, and this proved actually not to be correct as, as history moved a different way than we expected, but our worldview was that the 60s had shown the radical potential of big sectors of the population, particularly with the black freedom movement driving forward so many other movements, uh, that, uh, but, but it didn't uh, completely realize its goals, partly because no movement in one upsurge you know, changes everything, but also because there wasn't a coherent left to provide certain kinds of leadership and continuity that could carry over the lessons from previous generations and so on. So what we expected was that there would be a, a period, we, we knew that there wasn't going to be some straight shot toward revolutionary change. We expected some kind of uh, ebb period and, and period of where the mass movements would recede. Uh, and we would use that period to build some kind of revolutionary vanguard. Mm -hmm. And then the next upsurge would be even further to the left and even more working class based than the 60s movements were. I mean, it's a myth that the 60s movements were just the middle class student protester movement. There's a lot of working class people from all racial backgrounds involved in the 60s movements. Uh, so that, that, was our, that was our world view. Um, and we, of course, were influenced by the state of the international left at the time, which was that uh, parties that identified as Marxist or Marxist-Leninist seemed to be moving history forward. They were winning in Vietnam. They had made the Cuban Revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, China promised a more democratic form, a more grassroots form of socialism than many people felt had existed or existed in the Soviet Union. So that, that was our inspiration. Uh, and of course, those were the people who were the most demonized by the people who are our enemies, the U.S. Empire. Um, so, so, so we tried to build those kinds of organizations based on a certain ideological framework. Um, now, what's the same about that today is that there's a new, a new kind of radicalization. The origins of it are, are somewhat different. Um, there's more entryways into radical politics now. Many people are coming in through the environmental movement, mm -hmm. through, uh, in DSA, a, a very large proportion through the sense of downward social mobility, the economic hardship, student debt, things like that. And of course, others through the persistence of racism, uh, mass incarceration, and so on. There's many different entryways. Sure. But, in the DSA, a lot of people have joined DSA for the same reasons that we joined radical groups then, which is people feeling that the system needs to change and you need to do that in, together with others. So that's the same. Uh, what's different is that the whole map of the global, the global political and economic map is completely different from it was in the 1960s. So today, you do not have a strong international 
uh, coherent left. There are very few models, certainly, of, of any kind of socialism, but not the, the kind of socialism that was identified with the Marxist-Leninist parties has been discredited in many parts of the world. Now, that's a complicated summation. I think there's complicated reasons, but there were certainly structural problems and problems of uh, not a fully appreciation of democracy and so on in, in the 20th century models of existing socialism. At the same time, they faced you know, incredible repression and counter-revolution, so it's a complicated balance sheet. But there's a whole different map out there today. Uh, and there's different sentiments, the technology is different, communications is different. So DSA is not united around a ideological Marxism or Marxism-Leninism. Uh, it has a number of different tendencies of political views of what the correct strategy would be. It's a big tent. Mm -hmm. um, and that brings a different set of strengths and a different set of challenges and problems than the new communist movement that I wrote about had. So let's talk a little bit about your book, Revolution in the Air. You go into a deep dive into the, what's called the New Communist Movement of the 60s and 70s. Specifically, one of the key things I took away was how the New Communist Movement was organized closely, not only around academic notions of Marxist-Leninism um, that were popular with the old left at the time, but also struggles that were going on in real time in the Global South, and you just spoke a little bit about this. How can the left do a better job at centering their work and discussions around folks that have been historically underrepresented and exploited? Yeah, well, the, the new communist movement was actually, uh, it was birthed by a coming together of uh, different strands from the 60s radicalization. The um, the, a lot of the white activists, the 60s movements had been largely segregated, especially by race, not only by race, but especially by race. So there was a, a move, movements um, converged in the late 60s, those of us who identified with those national liberation movements around the world, uh, in my book, I talk about third world Marxism, the idea that a third world oriented version of Marxism that foregrounded struggles against racism and U.S. imperialism and empire, uh, and that's tried to emulate uh, what we thought would be a revitalization of what had become a sort of stale dogmatic uh, and in some ways overly conservative traditional communism identified with the Soviet Union. Um, so all tendencies on the left grew out of the 60s upsurge, Trotskyism, anarchism, radical feminism, uh, but this particular current was a convergence of a lot of the white activists from SDS, uh, former Panthers, people who had been in SNCC, Youth Organization for Black Unity, many other forces coming out of the Black Freedom Movement, the Asian American Movement, which had start, launched in the late 1960s. Before that, it, the different Asian nationalities had organized on a nationality-specific basis. The first Asian American organization was formed in Berkeley in the late 60s. 
uh, and the Chicano and Puerto Rican movements of the time. And there was a convergence in a sense that a multiracial uh, united revolutionary organization was, was the way to, to proceed. Um, so that uh, when the new communist movement started, it already had certain roots in the constituencies that were considered uh, the most, uh, I think as your question put it, underrepresented, exploited, the most vulnerable and economically and racially disadvantaged sectors of the working class. And the sense was that we needed to go deeper into that class and into the working class broadly. A lot of Vietnam vets coming back from Vietnam were very disillusioned with the system, so there was a, a wave of radicalization there. Uh, there was a, this was a period of labor militancy and, uh, and struggles within the trade union movement against some of the bureaucratic and Cold War mentality that had set in. Um, so the way it worked is if you had a political view that prioritized key sectors, the working class, the most vulnerable, and you sustained ongoing work and listened to what people felt their immediate needs were and had projects and programs that would fight for those immediate needs and you became trustworthy leaders or trustworthy supporters in those fights, and you introduced your ideology and your thinking about the whole system and that it was connect things were interconnected and it was connected to capitalism. Uh, over time, people would be radicalized more by their direct experience and would look to people who stood next to them and by them in struggle. Uh, so these groups did manage, uh, we did manage to get a certain foothold and base within the working class and particularly within the communities of color at the time. Um, now, um, this goes a little beyond what your, this specific question was, but we, we had misassessed the historical moment. We thought a new radicalization was coming. Maybe we can talk more about this later, but instead the country was moving to the right. And instead of a new upsurge toward the left, we got Reagan and Reaganism. And, the, the ruling class regrouped from its defeats and through a very sophisticated program of exploiting uh, racism, anti-feminism, homophobia, and counter-revolution, demonizing peoples of color around the world, demonizing the Arab world, and the energy crisis, demonizing Asians, demonizing Africans, they managed to regain the initiative. Mm -hmm. So we were a little out of touch. We were preparing for a new upsurge and we were really entering a defensive period and that obviously limited our ability to build the base because most of the working class was not thinking about revolutionary change. They were thinking about defending gains that had been made in the New Deal and in the 60s and we were a little out of touch. So it took, it took us longer than, <laughs> longer than it should have to readjust, and by the time we did, there were a lot of problems and we were much weaker than we would have been. Uh, and this is a big point in my, in my book about how that history worked out and what that actually looked like year to year. Mm -hmm. I'm generalizing now, of course. So, um, so we weren't able to do as well as we had hoped, obviously. But all the groups did manage. Uh, if you persist, 
and you have a political strategy that positions you and you're willing to work with people on an equal basis and a coalition mutually respectful basis over time you build your political credibility and people are attracted to your organization So I think you already mentioned some of the successes that the new communist movement had, but could you talk maybe a little bit more about some of those successes, you know, building a multiracial coalition and movement? I mean, that's obviously a huge success in the United States. Can you talk a little bit more about what the new communist, communist movement was able to do and what you would consider some of their greatest successes? Um. There's a lot of positive things about the new communist movement, but we should stay at the outset that in terms of its goal of building a new revolutionary vanguard that would make socialism a durable presence in U.S. society, it did not succeed. Um, and in that sense, uh, the movement was a failure. Um, and that was due to a combination of uh, being outgunned by our more powerful forces against us and our own mistakes. So within that context of an overall movement that did not succeed in its goals, uh, there were successes along the way in a limited way that carried over and allow today's movements and movements that came after the uh, late uh, end of the 80s where the new communist movement pretty much, and there's still shards of it that exist, but as a coherent revolutionary trend, it was pretty much over by the very early 90s. Uh, so, um, we played uh, different organizations, played important roles in different places. Here in South Carolina, in North Carolina, uh, Communist Workers Party were very active in the uh, movements to organize textile workers, to build unity between black and white, uh, to fight the Klan, to deal with racist violence. Um, day before yesterday was the 40th anniversary of the Greensboro Massacre. That's right. Where five uh, activists and, and members and friends of the Communist Worker Party were murdered by um, Klan and Nazis who were aided and abetted by members of the Greensboro uh, Police Department. And that kind of dedication and that kind of multiracial solidarity um, was a contribution. And you see many uh, parts of that carried on in different parts of the social movements around North Carolina and South Carolina and the South generally. Uh, on the West Coast, uh, the League of Revolutionary Struggle played a key role in the Watsonville strike. There's a great book about it called the Song of the Stubborn 1000. This was a strike by mainly Latina uh, women uh, in what was one of the largest canning, um, uh, largest, um, I forget right now, uh, places in Watsonville, uh, California. Uh, they won a long, bitter two-year strike and changed the po politics of Watsonville before there was no Latino representation and after that it changed the political dynamic. Uh, some of my comrades up in Seattle in the, in the line of march group and out of the Union of Democratic Filipinos uh, reformed the cannery workers local up there, uh, changed conditions for Philippi mainly Filipino cannery workers, built a 
Democratic Union uh, that is now part of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union on the West Coast, which is one of the progressive unions in the country, uh, that made some lasting change there. Um, new communist uh, forces were among those who led the first struggles in defense of affirmative action against the Bakke decision and the Weber decision uh, in the 70s. It made a big difference in slowing down the rollback that we've all been living through. And in a nu numerous other struggles, uh, anchored solidarity work with movements in the Philippines, in Chile, uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, they played an important role in the African, in the movement against apartheid. And then in the 1980s, uh, the groups that had survived through into the 80s, which wasn't all of them, played an important role in the struggles in the 80s in the Central America Solidarity Movement and in the Rainbow Coalition, uh, Jesse Jackson's campaigns for president and the Rainbow, which was an important uh, bridging um, uh, coalition that brought together different strands of the resistance of that time into a more coherent force in that particular period. Um, so these were important accomplishments. Um, they did not result in the transformation of the United States <laughs> the way we had hoped, but they made life better for a lot of people and uh, it laid some basis for uh, passing things on to the next generation, you all who are picking up the torch now. Yeah, and I mean, that's a huge success and we're obviously very grateful for all the work that those who came before us did. So you mentioned in your book that the new communist movement's tendency towards rigid orthodoxy was in some ways a major weakness of the movement. In 2019, the world of activism is much more fractured maybe than it was back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. But in your opinion, what is the best way or what are some of the ways that the left can unite and maybe win the hearts and minds without diluting our message of you know, revolutionary struggle? Well, I don't think there's any formula for that, but there are a few uh, ideas or leads that can help us figure that out and apply it in any concrete situation. Um, one thing is that uh, mainly people learn from their own experience. And we, the left's role is to help people interpret their experience and to be present and help shape it. But uh, we're not missionaries, and it's not a question of converting people. And people, while some number of people in society often change their minds through a largely intellectual process, or especially students when they're young people at a certain stage of life, uh, most people will change their view of the society when they're trying to get their interests met they engage in some kind of collective struggle for that and they push it as far as it can go. And at a certain point, if they can't get what people feel they righteously deserve and uh, they are prepared at that point, some number of people, to pursue things that are before that not thinkable, more risky things, more radical things. and. The left has to be in there, but we have to respect that this is a process through which people go through change. 
uh, and um, people from all backgrounds go through change. And sometimes the left is, uh, parts of the left are a little too eager to put someone in a box and say, oh, well, that person is this and that person is that and this pol political person will never change, you know, and all that kind of thing. So I think we have to be aware that uh, change happens and it happens through people's experience. I, you know, in my SDS chapter, by the end of the 1960s, there were people who in the early 60s, the fr some of the fraternities, some of the athletes would be out there harassing or even beating up the anti-Vietnam War protesters. And four years later, they're protesting the Vietnam War themselves. Mm -hmm. So if at the early stage you demonize these people as, well, they're hopeless, they're you know deplorable or what have you, that doesn't work. So that's, that's one threat. Um, another threat is that um, there needs I think I think when one becomes a revolutionary or a radical uh, and internalizes how rotten the system is, sometimes it, you can feel extremely impatient with other people who don't see things the way that you do. You've, you, like we've had an epiphany and how can you not see that the system is so messed up? People have very contradictory consciousnesses, and many people in the United States, you know, this is still, for all the poverty and all the misery, there is, um, there's a lot that people think is good, and most people, you know, try to live their lives. So I think we have to be aware, be, check ourselves sometime. And then the other thing, the third thing I'll say is, um, powerlessness and hopelessness and cynicism about change is a big problem. Uh, you know, you can't fight City Hall, the system is rigged. Not everybody who says the society is unfair and it's rigged is, not, is moving in a radical direction. Cynicism is not radicalism. And we have to recognize the difference between those two things. Um, and. Uh, try to provide people with hope, and nothing provides people with hope more than winning a victory or two here and there and raising people's expectations. It's not true that simply being more oppressed gets you more revolutionary. It's a combination of injustice and the expectation that you can do something to change things. And we have to model that, and we have to work at that. Um, and win some victories along the way. Uh, no one's going to trust the left to govern the country if, and rule the society or play a leading role in ruling society if they can't trust the left to win things along the way and feel that we're part of their responsible trying to make their life better. So those are some ideas. Applying that in a particular situation, of course, is very difficult. I really like what you just said about cynicism not being revolutionary. Um, it kind of leads into this next question here. The New Communist Movement, as you wrote, was not generally not interested in getting into electoral politics, but rather base building and street level activism. DSA, however, uh, currently, is a little different because we're working and recognize a need to do 
both. We want to do base building, but we also want to win elections. And we can point to some high profile victories around the country as such. Um, so, but what are your thoughts? Is engagement in electoral politics critical to future victories for the left? Or is it better to spend our limited time and resources on building working class power in more direct ways? I think uh, the new communist movement was not ideologically opposed to electoral politics. Uh, that would have been very difficult for us. After all, one of our biggest influences on us were the was the struggle for voting rights in yeah. the early 60s, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, the passage of the Voting Rights Act. I mean, that was a major impact on us. And we had studied in most of the new communist movement I mentioned before, uh, saw the black freedom movement as central. Uh, and we studied the history of Reconstruction and realized that uh, black enfranchisement during that period led to some of the most radical changes ever in U.S. history. And, and what rolled back Reconstruction was the Klan terror and the, the disenfranchisement of African Americans. So we weren't against electoral politics in some kind of ideological sense or mm -hmm. principle sense, but we, it was our assessment of the historical moment that because in the 60s upsurge, the electoral arena was blocked in terms of getting the things that we wanted in terms of peace, social justice, and so on. And millions of people had protested in the streets and there were the urban insurrections in the black community. We thought that millions of people had already moved past the electoral arena and had felt that they had, through their experience, already decided that that channel was blocked and they were prepared to take more advanced channels and do other kinds of things. And that was our thinking mainly in the 70s. But as the country moved to the right, and then in the early 80s, we saw the new upsurge of resistance taking an electoral form. Uh, the Harold Washington campaign in Chicago, which elected the first black mayor of Chicago and, uh, you know, in one of the bitterest fights of racial polarization and political polarization. And then the Jesse Jackson campaign, uh, which challenged the Reagan administration and the whole neoliberal turn uh, had a plank, uh, which at the time, of course, today, uh, two-state uh, two solution in Palestine is not a radical position, it's a more conservative <laughs> position. But in the early 80s, the pa you couldn't say the word Palestine in mainstream thing. The new communist movement was one of the few sections of society that was critical of Zionism and took up the Palestinian cause and brought that, Jesse brought that cause into, um, right into the mainstream of the society during, especially during the period of the first intifada. So we engaged that electoral period. Um, the trick, of course, is how do you engage that where you build up your own political power and you just don't get used in, uh, by the powers that be. The electoral arena is a very complicated and difficult arena to engage because you're working on a certain scale, the system is rigged in favor of money, gerrymandering, there's all these problems. And if you go into it without a more coherent, independent organizations of your own and building up your own sense and a realistic sense of what can be accomplished, you can get chewed up. On the other hand, there are certain big pluses of being in the electoral arena. You mentioned some of them in your, que in, in your question. Uh, I'd also add, for example, electoral politics forces you to think of 
forces you to think in terms of winning a majority. It sends you out there into communities that you might not otherwise engage with. It forces the idea of coalition and linking together different social movements and getting out of each specific silo. Um, and it gets you thinking about what does it mean to prepare the working class and the broader society to, to, be a govern, to be a governing power. So there's many pluses for the left as well as minuses uh, or difficulties and challenges. But I don't think in a society where the, the bourgeois democratic uh, electoral system uh, is the main way that most people engage in politics that we concede that to the enemy. Um, I would also add, uh, this is a whole other discussion, that we are facing a particular moment right now with the white nationalist driven Trump administration having captured uh, the executive power. Uh, and I think it's a big mistake to underestimate how dangerous that is. And they captured power through an electoral process. It was a rigged electoral process, the racist electoral college and so on. Nonetheless, it's not a surprise that most people who are anti-Trump see the election as the main way to get rid of this obstacle towards social change. We have to engage that as well. Uh, for the left to cede that to all the other forces would put us on the side. We can't throw everything into electoral politics. The other things you mentioned, building up the labor movement, rebuilding the infrastructure in communities of color, uh, protest demonstrations, fight against ICE, uh, educating on issues, uh, there's all kinds of other things that need to be done, but we can't see the electoral arena to our opponents. So Max, as we quickly approach 2020, the left must now contend with a number of issues such as climate change, the resurgence, as you mentioned, of white supremacy and its capture of the executive branch, the federal government, and the widening chasm between the working class and our capitalist oppressors. Now, even as the left experiences its own uprising, the issues that we must tackle, you know, we don't really have an option to ignore them, they're becoming more urgent. So what are your thoughts? Like, how do we build the left in this particular moment, and you, you kind of already spoke a little bit to that, but could you maybe expand on it a little bit more? Uh, well, we're facing an extremely challenging situation. Uh, they're, they're, I think how we got here will tell us something about how we might get out of here. Um, we've been in uh, 40, 50 years of rollback against the gains of the social movements in the left in the 60s globally and in the United States. And that rollback has taken a particular turn uh, in the last four, six, eight years. And there's two conditions that have led to that, in my opinion. One of them uh, is the crisis of the model of capitalism that came about in the mid-70s and into the 80s. We called it Reaganism then. It tends to be termed neoliberalism now. And the 2008 financial crisis meant that the burden of that crisis got shifted to the middle classes, the working class, and peoples around the world. And there was basically more hardship for everyone. 
the second particular to the United States, but taking a different form in many other countries, was changing demographics. The United States is going to be a majority people of color country 20, 30, 40 years down the road. And this was something that was happening gradually, but got thrust into the public consciousness by the election of the first black president. Uh, and this uh, basically called, caused panic in certain uh, sections of the society. Uh, the country was built on white supremacy, and the anxiety and prejudice that got, has been fanned for 40 years by, the ruling, by sections of the ruling class uh, around race, or as it was put in the hip hop era, fear of a black planet. Uh, <laughs> That galvanized uh, an incredible reactionary backlash heightened and gave uh, Trump moved into that and built a coalition driven by white nationalism. Uh, it's, a, it's, there, it's, a, it's a myth that it's mainly a white worker driven coalition. That coalition is driven by a bunch of right wing billionaires, the fossil fuel industry and uh, the military industrial complex. They know that their program is unpopular with the broad mass of people, including especially young people. So they, re and they see the demographic change and they realize that in order to get their program of fossil fuel driven capitalism through, they have to ensure minority rule. They want to rule against the will of the majority in a different way. Uh, so what's being offered as an agenda is basically a racialized apartheid, a racialized authoritarian state. And that's the essential program of the Trump administration. Now, the, there are people opposed to that program from a wide variety of reasons. There's one part of people of the ruling class that is opposed to it because they think it's unstable and it will mess up the arrangement that they think was going pretty well for them. And they just want to go back to the status quo before. But there's a much larger wing of the anti-Trump coalition that has a different view, which is we need change. We need change around climate change. We need to address climate change. We need a Green New Deal, we need Medicare for all, we need to end mass incarceration, we need to abolish ICE, all these programs, and the main immediate obstacle facing that is the Trump administration. We have to get them out. Now, we want to fight for the maximum influence of the progressive agenda within the anti-Trump front. That's what Bernie Sanders is all about. That's why Bernie says not only does he want to fight for his program, uh, but he also talks about the Trump administration being the most dangerous administration he's ever seen. And we are working both in the electoral arena and through all these different protest movements to strengthen the progressive wing of the anti-Trump coalition so that if in fact we can beat Trump and his enablers in the GOP and throw back the white nationalists, that we cannot be marginalized again. We cannot, we won't just go back to the status quo. And that means we not only have to throw ourselves into the electoral fight and first the primary stage and working for Bernie or some people working for Elizabeth Warren who have sort of tag teamed together now against the centrists or moderates or corporates, whatever you want to call them. 
and then we have to keep right on going. We have to put two million people into the streets on Inauguration Day 2020, uh, 2021, no matter who's elected president, and keep moving that struggle forward. Because whoever is elected, even under a best-case scenario, someone sympathetic to the left, they're not going to be able to move anything. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and we shouldn't be placing our trust even in people that we like in office. You have to have a grassroots movement, and you have to have a labor movement, you have to have an anti-racist movement, you have to push on climate change. No, the, the system is inert, and we're in an emergency. So that's more or less my, my, my perspective about uh, what we need to do. And I think the lesson of previous periods in U.S. history is that it is possible for the left to grow in tandem with a much broader coalition, come out the other side stronger, um, and move history forward another notch. Thank you again for this great discussion. And, uh, again, that was Max Elbaum, author of Revolution in the Air. Uh, thanks, Max, for coming down to talk to us. Uh, thanks, Nick, for holding down the interview. This is CJ Bones uh, here at Renegade Paradise. Y'all be good. Exploitation, no sooner take.